And in my view, it would be extraordinarily unfortunate for the future of the Republican Party if that would be our nominee. An individual who has been indicted multiple times, an individual who, in my view, defied and undermined his oath of office. That's Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, who is urging fellow Republicans to consider other candidates for 2024 instead of Donald Trump. Tim Scott, what an honorable man. What an upstanding American. Look at Nikki Haley, what she has already demonstrated with her leadership. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. And this is not a normal place when you have a lousy senator like Burkowski. But we're going to do something about that. We're going to do Lisa Murkowski has taken on Donald Trump before and lived to tell about it. You don't roll over for the bully. After voting to convict Trump at his second impeachment trial, Murkowski fought off a Trump-backed challenge in 2022 thanks in part to Alaska's embrace of election reforms like open primaries and ranked choice voting. I think what we demonstrated in Alaska was the possibility that electoral reform can happen and it can deliver outcomes that are less partisan and perhaps less politically rancorous. Now she's continuing to see compromise in the Senate as another presidential election and possible Trump comeback looms. If we go into a 2024 scenario where it's basically a redo of 2020 between Trump and Biden, what does that say? That we have nobody better than these two? But does she see an alternative in a potential third party run by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin? I tell you, if it's a matchup between Biden and Trump, I know exactly where I'd go. I would go with Joe Manchin. How would you determine that that vote wouldn't send Trump back to the White House? Senator Lisa Murkowski, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you so much. It is so good to be with you, Margaret. Thank you for the invitation. You were elected to your fourth term in the U.S. Senate last November. And before we dive into it, I should disclose that I am the president of an organization which works to advance LGBT equality amongst Republican federal office holders. And that organization supported you in your reelection. Thank you. You were the only Republican who was up for reelection in 2022 who had voted to convict Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. The Alaska Republican Party censured you after you voted to convict Donald Trump. And President Trump made it a personal mission to defeat you in your reelection effort. He endorsed your opponent, he ran ads against you. And yet you won your reelection with almost 54% of the vote. What was it like to take on Donald Trump head on? You know, in reflection, I never really felt like this was Lisa versus Donald Trump. This was a continuation of my, my advocacy on behalf of Alaska. And I feel so strong, so strongly about what I do for the people of Alaska and why I do it, that the thought of having the opposition from a former president, a very targeted, very personal and very directed attention, um, it was something that I was going to do for my state. 
I was not going to do it to beat Donald Trump. I wasn't going to do it to poke him in the nose. I was going to do it because I felt that Alaskans deserved to have good continued representation. And you don't, you don't roll over for the bully. If you feel strongly enough about what you do, mm-hmm. you stand up, you do your job, you put it out there to the Alaskan electorate, and you see what they do. And what they did is they returned me to the Senate for a fourth term. In 2020, Alaskans voted to change how primary and general election voting works in right. Alaska. And that new process came right in time for your reelection in 2022. Alaska tested nonpartisan pick one primary systems and ranked choice voting in the general election. Now, because this is an unusual system across the country, can you explain how that primary process works and how the general election works that's different from regular voting? Well, about 12 years, maybe a little bit longer, actually, um, Alaska did have an open primary system. In other words, if you were a Republican, you could you could vote for anybody on, on the slate, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. Um, we went to a closed primary, as so many states have. Um, we did that, uh, again, about 12, 15 years or so ago. Um, but what we put in place by initiative, and remember, to get an initiative on the ballot in Alaska is not an easy proposition. It requires ballot signatures. But Alaskans weighed in and said, we want, we want more participation in, in our elections. We want greater voice in, in how, um, how our, our representatives are selected. And so they moved towards a, a relatively novel approach, um, basically opening up the primary again. So the top four vote getters in the primary advanced regardless of party. So you could have four Republicans advance. You could have two R's and two D's. You could have, you could have any any configuration. But the top four names went forward, and then in the in the general election, what you then did is you selected among those four. Now people have suggested that somehow or other this is complicated. This is too difficult for people to understand. Was it complicated? No. I mean, think about it. You go to a restaurant. You've got a whole slate of things in front of you. Do I want the 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 chicken fajita? Do I want the beef tacos? Do I want the enchiladas? You you select. We we can prioritize. It's not hard. What I think is a little more complicated is then how how the actual sorting happens once all the ballots have been cast, have been received, and are now tabulated. What you're talking about is the ranking in the general election. Right. So once the four primary candidates advance to the general election, you, Lisa Murkowski, go to the polls and you vote for your first, second, and third choice Mm -hmm. for U.S. Senator. Mm -hmm. And then what happens in the tabulation? So then in the tabulation, if, if somebody among those top four, if somebody has achieved over 50%, they win. There's no, there's no recount, if you will. That's actually what happened with our governor. He was able to pull 50, 50% plus on the second round. So if nobody pulls 50, then what happens is the person on the bottom of the stack who received the fewest votes, their second choices are reallocated to the others. And you go through that process until one candidate has received 
over 50%. And this is how you ended up achieving 54%, almost 54% of the ballot. Yes, when all the tabulation was was done, I had received 54%. But I think it's important to recognize, and some have suggested that, you know, somehow or other, uh, this process is designed to just elect uh, more left-leaning candidates. But look, look at what happened in, in the Alaska race. You had myself, a moderate Republican who was returned. You had a Democrat, a moderate Democrat sent to the House mm-hmm. um, to replace a congressman who had been in place for 49 years. But then you had a very conservative Republican governor that was returned to office with a very strong margin. And so you you look at the Alaska example, and I, I look at that and I say, that's just Alaskans picking the individual that they feel is is best positioned to serve and represent them. So after having survived your reelection with this new system, are you a supporter of ranked choice voting? I am. And it's interesting, if you look at the numbers, I won the general without the help of ranked choice. So I think that that's important to just state. But as as a candidate, as one who went through this, I think it's good. I think it's good for the Alaskan electorate to be able to feel like they have, they've got a say in this process. Let me, let me put it a little bit more in context. About 26% of Alaskan electorate identify as Republicans, about 17% Democrats. That means you've got over 60% of the population that chooses not to affiliate with either of the two major parties. Where do they go? Where's their political home? In a primary, they don't feel like there's any real incentive to participate in that. And then they get into the general, and what they've been given are two individuals on the extremes of both sides. And they look at that and say, how do I have a voice in this? So ranked choice gives them that voice. Ranked choice gives them the voice in the general. But it sounds like also because of the open primary process that takes the top four and advances them, that's really where unaffiliated voters get to weigh in. It it is. And and again, if you have if you've got a very strong Republican Party in your state, the likelihood of of, you know, maybe your first, maybe your second tier. Republican. They're going to advance. So it's not like your parties are disenfranchised. But what, what I think has, we have seen is that the, the, the strings that the two major parties hold over candidates are perhaps frayed a little bit. And I think that that's a good thing. I think we have become far too partisan in this country. And I think we see that in Washington, D.C. We see individuals that that their heart, their mind knows where they should be on a particular vote, but they know that they're going to get creamed by their party if they, if they vote the wrong way. They know they will be primaried by somebody who is more conservative or perhaps more liberal. And so the parties have, have really come to um, exert levels of influence, in my view, that... Um, we need we need to look at this. We need to figure out. All right, is this is this really where the American electorate is giving all the strength to to party leadership? And is it, it sounds like what you're saying is it's closed partisan primaries 
that are controlling the quality of candidates at the state level. I think we see that, yeah. If Alaska had continued to have a closed partisan primary, mm-hmm. would you have won your primary? If the primary had been closed, as we have seen in, in the past dozen years, I think it's a fair statement that I would have had a very, very difficult time in, in moving past that primary. Yeah, and this happened to you, actually. <laughs> It did. Once in before, in 2010. I, I'm evidence. In a closed partisan primary in mm-hmm. the Tea Party wave, um, mm-hmm. you ended up having to win by running as an independent, a write-in candidate. It was crazy. But it was crazy good. It was crazy amazing. Well, in my humble opinion, and I think the audience knows where I stand about your, your, your version of moderate republicanism. Well, I just, I want to say why I think it was crazy good, because what, what Alaskans did, not what Lisa Murkowski did, but what Alaskans did was they said, we, this system that has delivered us an individual that we think is, is not one that will represent us well, that is too far, too far to the extremes. We don't accept that result. We are willing to engage in the most proactive type of voting possible. Going into the ballot box, looking at the the office, United States Senate, and seeing a line that just says, write in. Nowhere on that ballot was, was my name present. There was a little circle and a line. And we needed to educate voters that if you if you wanted to stand up and and reject the partisan outcome from that primary election. You needed to write in my name, you needed to spell it correctly, and you needed to fill in the little oval next to it. Because if you spelled it correctly, but you didn't fill in the oval, the computer wouldn't catch it and count it. So we handed out rubber wristbands that said, fill it in, write it in. And there was a little bubble and the name. So I've worn this bracelet since 2010. My husband turned the, the rubber wristband into gold, but it's fill it in, write it in, Lisa Murkowski. And it's a reminder. It's a reminder to me every day that I was returned to this position in the Senate because of Alaskan voters who said, we're going to reject the extremes and we're going to put our confidence in you. You have said, especially in the context of ranked choice voting, um, especially the, w- given the background that you, know, you supported the Democratic candidate for the House of Representatives, she supported your reelection. You said Alaska's different. Mm-hmm. But is there something about these voter reforms that actually could have applicability beyond Alaska? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I see across the country different states looking to see if they can't advance some iteration of ranked choice. And I think that that's good. I think that that's po- powerful. I said, I said during our election last year, we want to make sure that, that how Alaska proceeds with ranked choice is demonstrated as a good model, one that other states will look at and say, we like, we like the voice that ranked choice gave. We like the fact that candidates were actually perhaps a little bit more civil to their opponents when I knew that I needed to get Margaret's 
second place vote. So I'm not going to trash talk her in our debates or in my public encounters because I want to pick up some of that support too. So we saw a level of, of civility um, in, in many cases, in some cases, not so much, but, um, but I think what we demonstrated in Alaska was the possibility that electoral reform can happen and it can deliver outcomes that are less partisan and perhaps less um, politically rancorous. When you look at the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, which Mm -hmm. sent uh, him over to the Senate for his trial, of those 10, only two were returned by voters Mm -hmm. to the House of Representatives, and both of them were from states that had implemented some kind of voter reform. What does that tell you? It, it tells me that the voters in states where uh, the voter really is encouraged to look at the individual, they want that individual to stand up for them, to stand up for what is right, instead of to stand up for the party position. That's what that tells me. You've said that we shouldn't assume that Trump will be the 2024 Republican presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. But right now, the polling, as you know, is telling a different story. Uh, About half of Republican primary voters support President Trump for the nomination. Do you think there is a possibility that he will not be the GOP nominee? Yes. How? Um, this This is July. We have over a year. Um, we're just about a year until, until the conventions, lots can happen. You have an individual that's running for the presidency, um, that is making his own news in unique ways with, with two indictments against him, uh, with the potential for perhaps a third. That's pretty newsworthy. That's pretty unprecedented. And in my view, and in my view, it would be extraordinarily unfortunate for the future of the Republican Party if that would be our nominee. An individual who has been indicted multiple times, um, an individual who, in my view, um, defied and undermined his oath of office, which is to first and foremost protect and defend Uh, the people of this country. In my view, uh, this former president incited an insurrection on the Capitol. To me, it should be be done. It should be over. Um, But apparently for for many Republicans in this country, um, they have, have chosen to look beyond that. And in some cases, the indictment seemed to have strengthened the former president's position within the Republican primary contest. That's what it would appear. And, um, and again, I don't, I don't understand why with the, uh, with the strong candidates Mm -hmm. that we have out in the audience right now, Tim Scott, what an honorable man, what an upstanding American. Um, He is far more conservative than me. But there is no doubt in my mind that he would put his country first ahead of his own personal interest. 
Look at Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. what she has always, already demonstrated with her leadership. We have individuals uh, on the Republican side of the ledger who have put their names forward, who just are, 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 are seemingly swimming upstream right now trying to get recognition. And the recognition is going because um, the, the bad news following Trump just seems to get a little bit worse. And, and that seems to energize, energize uh, certain voters. I think it's unfortunate. There is a candidate in the primary contest who is not holding back at all when it comes to criticizing Donald Trump. Of course, that's Chris Christie. Mm -hmm. Asa Hutchinson has also right. not minced words. Mm -hmm. But they demonstrate a different approach. Um, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are hesitant yeah. to, to criticize and distinguish themselves apart from Donald Trump. But Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson aren't. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that difference? I think you have candidates that are trying to trying to figure out how they cut through the Trump noise. And, and it, it may be that if we see, for instance, Chris Christie gaining traction because he is more forthright with his words, that perhaps the others will will be more 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 bold in that way. But I think we've got I'm not a candidate for president, never want to be, but I, I think these candidates are looking and trying to to figure out how they get these individuals who are now aligning themselves with Trump, how they get them to their side. And I should point out that Chris Christie is, at least in the most recent New Hampshire polls, climbing up. He is now third. Uh, Donald Trump has around 37 percent. DeSantis has around 11 and Christie's at 10. So, so he's getting in the double digits. That's good. That, it looks and like that might be that signal. So again, I think as Republicans, we need we need to look at um, at the quality of of the candidates, what what they represent. Uh, with some with some candidates, you're not quite sure mm -hmm. what you may get. Mm -hmm. We know what we get with Donald Trump. We get an individual who again failed to uphold his oath of office. Your Democratic colleague. Joe Manchin mm -hmm. is being courted by an uh, outside effort um, to run as an independent in the 2024 election. Uh, this has been called by the organization No Labels an insurance policy. And mm -hmm. the idea is that it will get an independent line on all on the ballot of all 50 states um, to reserve the right to run an independent candidacy in the event that, um, that it is a Trump-Biden ticket. Do you see any scenario where a third-party candidacy isn't a spoiler for Donald Trump and just returns him to the White House. Yeah, you know, there's there's been no end of of um, second guessing and and people moving the numbers around and trying to see whether this is 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 going to be uh, a, a good strategy, a positive strategy. I will say, I don't I don't know um, on that. Others far smarter than me with with. Uh, uh, with elections can can weigh in there, and they certainly have. Think about it. If if we go into a 2024 scenario where it's basically a redo mm -hmm. of 2020 between Trump and Biden, what does that say? That we have nobody better than these two, and we know that that Biden is going to be there. I mean, unless unless something should happen. 
You mean you think Biden will win? I think that Biden will be the nominee. I don't see, I see. anybody else uh, coming in. And, 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 and so when I say something happens, it, mm-hmm. something should happen where he should determine that he's not going to run. And I just don't see that. I look at that and say that that to me is extraordinary. Again, given the exceptional men and women that are around this country, mm-hmm. those that have already chosen to step up, that are putting themselves out there. And so an independent or somebody who is offering something in the middle, people are hungry for that. I can tell you, I'm talking to people up north. They're asking, because they know that I'm very close with Joe Manchin. And um, I brought him up to the state uh, a couple times and he endorsed me. I've endorsed him. Um, for a Senate re-election. For a Senate re-election. And he endorsed me for my Senate uh, re-election. And I have no qualms providing my endorsement to a Democrat mm-hmm. who I think has been not only extraordinarily helpful to me and Alaskan issues, but in, in the Senate as well. And, and Alaskans are saying, can you talk Joe into running? That's not for me to do. Um, I do think about what a, what a third party um, will bring to the equation. We've seen it before on multiple occasions. Very wealthy people who had an opportunity to, to fund their race who, who weren't able to, to cut through. Um, you know, maybe it was just not the right time. Maybe now would be a more opportune time. If you decided I think we to just run, don't know. Would you support him if he decided to run? I, I, I tell you, if it is, if it's a matchup between Biden and Trump, I know exactly where I'd go. I would go with Joe Manchin. I am, I am one who doesn't like to use my vote for the lesser of evils. I want to be proactive in who I think could do the job. I think Manchin could do the job. But will our system allow for that? That I don't know. How would you determine that that vote wouldn't send Trump back to the White House? I'd have to, I would really have to do some serious evaluation. And again, this is, this is July of, of 2023. And who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the months ahead? We just don't know. You're a pro-choice Republican. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of two in the entire United States Congress. And when Roe v. Wade was overturned, you had been assured through your private conversations with the justices that this was settled law and you had expressed um, real disappointment. Super precedent. Super precedent. Super precedent. Mm -hmm. Uh, You expressed your disappointment um, at the court's decision and also at the level of confidence that Americans have in the court, um, which has been shaken. This session, the court also made several high-profile decisions, um, including one that dismantled affirmative action. What is your reaction to the recent affirmative action decision? I think I saw it coming. Um, I think many saw it coming. Um, in contrast to Roe? In contrast to Roe, yes. Yes, and not, and not necessarily because of the makeup right here, right now of, of the United States Supreme Court, um, but just with the, the, the broader passage of time. Um, and so I was not as surprised about uh, the decision on affirmative action as I was with, with the Dobbs decision. Do you support it? 
Do I support the affirmative? The dismantling of affirmative action? I think I think we have a long ways to go as a country um, in ensuring that we have the level of, of diversity that I think that we would all want in in our academic institutions. Um, and I, I don't believe that the job is done. I do think that the, the signal that this, this uh, court has sent is one that really puts the onus on these institutions mm-hmm. to look critically at what other ways do we work to ensure that there is that level of diversity, of of, of, of equity, of fairness, and, and to critically self-evaluate how, um, how they advance admissions. What are the consequences of the decline in public confidence in the Supreme Court? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I, um, I worry about who's president, who's in charge, who the administration is, because, you know, you want the good signal of policy. I worry about uh, the institution that I am part of in the Congress because I see it becoming so partisan, and and I feel like I can have a say in in helping to shape that through example. Um, But I feel less able to help shape um, and have influence on the court, understandably so, separate but equal branch of government there. But I see happening in the court the same erosion of public confidence and trust that we have in the executive and in the legislative. And we've always been able to kind of rely on the courts to be the solid, they're 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 serious, they're non-political, they're in their black robes and uh, just the facts, ma'am. And you may disagree with the end result of a case, but what was it free from, from political overtones? Um, we've always had that confidence. And, and I fear that we're seeing that same erosion of public trust. And when the people do not trust the institutions of their governance, if they have lost that trust, where are we as a country? This is how we were founded, on, 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 on the trust in, in our governing structures. But we can't govern without the confidence of those that we are to govern. It's a problem. When Roe was overturned in the Dobbs decision, Clarence Thomas suggested that other decisions that relied on substantive due process ought to also be reviewed. Mm-hmm. And that sent alarm bells off in the LGBT community, mm-hmm. which then went on to right. pass into law the codification of marriage equality for all LGBT Americans, a bill that you voted for. Right. That same response has not happened with the pro-choice activists. After Dobbs' decision came down and Roe v. Wade was overturned, um, you teamed up with Senator Kane, Tim Kane, Susan Collins, Kristen Sinema, to write a bipartisan bill that would codify the freedom for women to obtain an abortion. This is the Reproductive Freedom Act for All. But it has gone nowhere in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't Democrats want to sign on to the most basic opportunity to codify Roe into law? 
you are asking such a basic, reasonable question. Why not codify? And we've seen the Democrats' response, which is the Women's Reproductive Freedom Act, which is much broader than just the codification, much broader than the codification. And I think um, immediately after Dobbs, the reaction was, we've got to, we've just got to, we've got to go full out. We have to ask for everything. Um, there can be no, no nuance to this. It has to be, it has to be entirely uh, the the Democrats' bill. It's interesting, it's interesting to note that the two Republicans, myself and Susan Collins, were not brought in to input onto that bill. I think the approach that was taken was we're gonna we're gonna just move out with our bill and we're going to use it to demonstrate that Republicans don't care about a woman's right to choose that Republicans are not interested. I think that that was unfortunate. And, 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 and thus, the effort to put, to introduce a bipartisan bill that, again, it is not, it is not unlimited. It does not allow for abortions up until the time of, of, of birth. It, it has parameters. It basically takes us back to where we were uh, pre-Dobbs decision which for some is not enough. For others, it's too much. So maybe that's just the sweet spot. That's the conclusion that we arrived at. Is it possible to gain some, some support for our bill? I think if Democrats realize that they're not going to, to be able to advance theirs, mm -hmm. then it, it, it allows for, for, the, for the thought that maybe we can move this bipartisan bill. But before we can do that, we need to find we need to find six, eight more Republicans who are willing to do that. And if you look at at the current makeup in the Senate, we're hard pressed to find those individuals that would recognize that what we had pre-Dobbs around this country was working in so many states. And you also have the House, which is a, which is yet another roadblock. The Equal Rights Amendment, yeah, also yeah. known as the ERA, another good one, was was first introduced in 1923, mm -hmm. and you have supported efforts for its ratification. Yep. Uh, on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr., he hosted a debate about the ERA that included Phyllis Schlafly, wow, who of course was led the crusade against the ERA, yep. and ERA supporter Ann Scott. The whole thing is misrepresented as a woman's rights amendment. In fact, the principal beneficiary will be men. It will give men a great opportunity to get out from under their obligations, their obligations to be drafted and to support their family, et cetera, et cetera. It will entitle, you, it will entitle men and women both to have equal rights of citizenship. And I don't favor, I don't believe in favoring one sex over the other. I think that people should be treated as human beings first. How would finally ratifying the ERA help women in the United States? Well, we like to think of ourselves as a place where women are treated equally. Hmm? But look at, look at the makeup that we see in, in government, in Congress. We're 25, between the House and Senate, women make up about 25%. 
I don't know, but it seems to me that women make up half the population. So uh, the fact that we've got a quarter, only a quarter represented in in uh, our our governance system doesn't seem to make sense. Look at look at uh, the financial sector. Look at all aspects of business where where women line up in terms of of their um, higher positions. We are not yet equal in in most areas. Uh, we're still dealing with pay discrepancy, depending on what part of the country you're from. But I think on average, it's still about 79 cents that a woman earns for a man's dollar. So I look at it and 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 believe very strongly that it is yet one one more one more commitment that we make to to women's equality. And uh, I think as I talk to people, most believe that we've already enacted the Equal Rights Amendment. In Alaska, we were, we were a very early mover, right? After it was introduced, um, we signed on, I think it was in 1974. Um, so certainly in Alaska, we think we've checked that box. But we have not, and I think that that, uh, that is demonstrated in just the statistics that we continue to face as women. Lisa Murkowski, thank you for joining me on Fire Thank Online. you. It's been a great, great opportunity. Thank you.